Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Welcome, everybody, and happy Friday. I do just want to give a quick shout out. Erin, I feel like we're um, bookending the month of August with discussions about enrollment and admissions and the challenges that we're facing. So if you want to continue our conversation um, on August 31st at 1 o'clock Eastern, we'll be um, talking with Joe Schaefer from uh, Laramie County Community College. They've actually managed to grow enrollment at a time that has been really challenging to do so. Um, And so we look forward to a chance for all of us to kind of come together and talk about the challenges that we're facing and and opportunities. that, that are present for us. So, um, but I do want to uh, remind folks that you can share Friday Five Live in lots of different ways. So um, you've got great links and Melissa's put our PowerPoint um, in our chat for today. Um, so we are very fortunate to have Aaron Basco back with us. Thank you, Aaron, um, with a new title, if I remember incorrectly, Associate Vice President. Uh, I'm now Vice President of President. Enrollment uh, Marketing and Communications. So it's, it's a just continue longer, right? Yeah. Right, right. Um, just is a sign of all the things that you bring to the role, right? If they, as they add words, it just means that uh, you know so much that they want to encompass all of that. And it's exciting to get to talk with you. Um, if you've not had a chance to do so, I really encourage you uh, to follow Aaron's writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education and other higher ed um, resources. Just always um, makes me pause and think and reflect. And um, I really appreciate uh, all that you share um, with those of us in, in the higher ed uh, community. So today we're here to focus on the tr- tricky topic of college admissions and college enrollment. Um, Last month, we uh, were fortunate enough to have Jim Laramore, um, who'd been with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, come and talk with us about the Supreme Court's decision the end of June regarding the end of race-conscious admissions. Um, So a bit of a weighty topic. And I feel like we're beginning to see those real um, ripple effects in some of the news that's come out this week and um, as the Common App has been released and things like that. But Definitely the number one topic that people keep saying to us over and over again that they really want to talk about and um, is college and admissions and enrollment numbers. Um, so, Aaron, thank you for bringing your expertise and your crystal ball to our conversation today. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to be here and hopefully I can help. I'm, I'm, I'll polish my crystal ball as much as I can here. Right, see what right. We can right. Say. So. <laughs> um, and I do want to remind everybody, while I prepare questions for Aaron and I to, to discuss, we love to hear from you. So if you have questions, and Aaron, we have folks from literally all over. We've got people listening in from the UK and Canada today, um, as well as some hot spots um, in the US too. So do please put your um, your questions in the chat, as Melissa said, if you'll just make sure those are available for everyone, um, we will incorporate those um, into our conversations uh, conversation today. So Erin, just to kick us off, you know, wow, what a year it's been in <laughs> college admissions. Um, you know, as you know, I, I cut my teeth in higher education 20 years ago in the admissions world. So it's always, always kind of, um, and very present with me, um, but I don't know that there's ever been a year like this. 
No, I, you know, I used to think we were kind of a boring field that no one was interested in, but you, you could not tell that by the news this year, right? I mean, I, I think the amount of stories and the amount of interest in enrollment is that seems to be at an all-time high. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've seen just so much interest, I mean, you know, beyond the Supreme Court decision and, you know, now you know, discussions about legacy admission and just so many different, you know, things going on, I think all at a time when institutions are really trying to figure out who they are right and they are they're receiving back feedback from the marketplace that you know at a time when they are the most sort of uh squeezed um they are you know they're hearing from families right from survey data that um, families don't have confidence in the value of uh higher education right that's sort of at an all-time low uh, and at the same time we're going to do some you know some big changes like uh the the largest change to the FAFSA we have seen in decades, right? Um, so it sort of feels at the moment like everything's conspiring against colleges. <laughs> um, you know that they're they're really kind of kind of struggling to to kind of keep their image and keep their heads above water a little bit in the enrollment area. So it it certainly has been a year. Yeah, that's such a good point. I I mean I can't believe I forgot about all those changes that are coming as FAFSA. I mean, way to keep. You're right. Way to keep hitting admissions with just one new change after yeah. another. So any trends or kind of themes from this year that you think are really going to um, have, have not only shaped this year, but are going to influence things moving forward? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think part of what we're seeing is we there was a little bit of this sense of um, you know, recovering from the pandemic, that, that was really the pandemic that was, you know, our the the big disruptor, right? And the only disruptor. And it certainly was a huge disruptor. But I think as we are coming back, we're realizing that, you know, if that was the the source, it we are not headed back to normal, right? We are not headed back to pre, and that they were underlying um problems that had been you know, coming for a long time that um, that just maybe exposed in some ways. And, you know, for me, I think um, probably the biggest really eye opener for me has been just this sense that as we've seen more and more institutions talking about closing, you know, talking about the high percentage of institutions that probably have more financial issues than we realize, um, you know, the for me, the largest conclusion that I'm coming to is that we have been using the same financial model for institutions probably since the 50s, uh, which is, you know, every year you just grow by a few students and you charge a little more tuition. Um, and I think that is showing that it is absolutely a broken system, right? That that is not a financial model that is going to work moving forward. And how are institutions going to adapt to that? I think, you know, we've been, we've been making some small time, uh, you know, small sort of adjustments to that, right? We are, We've tried, you know, adding new programs, uh, reaching out to different populations, you know, doing dual enrollment, you know, some some tweaks around the edges. Um, and then we're starting to look at more substantial pieces like saying, hey, our now we need to dive into more graduate work, even if we've you know primarily been undergraduate institutions. We now know that you know we need the graduate programs to pay the bills and we need more auxiliary revenue. And I think. That for me is the biggest takeaway is that um, tuition driven, being a tuition driven institution is not going to be sufficient in the future. We are going to have to find a way to, if, if that is our current mission, to replace that mission with other revenue streams that um, make that mission possible because it is not, in my opinion, a self-sustaining um, revenue model. 
So I think that's been been the biggest one on my mind anyway. Yeah, that's really very important to think about. And and it's interesting to to have that conversation uh, just yesterday. I think the Chronicle had a piece about how institutions are moving away from OPMs, which like 10 years ago was like the hot way to make, you know, we're going to. Yep. You take care of all of our online, and then that's going to bring in a bunch of revenue, right? That's going to be the the new miraculous revenue stream. And I think dual enrollment classes, as you've mentioned, have been certainly um, a, another way a lot of institutions. In fact, we just talked about that last week. I think one in five community college students are now a dual enrollment learner. So, I mean, profoundly important resources and revenue streams, but are we kind of at this place where we have to say, this system is not, Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think we're getting there very, very rapidly. I would say this last year for me has been one of, you know, our, our industry moving from denial to, mm-hmm. uh, to realization, right. Starting to see that realization as we're seeing the market just, you know, contract. And we know that even bigger contractions are coming, right? Yeah. So what is that going to look like for us? I think there are a lot of institutions saying, wow, uh, our model is not sustainable in this way. And what do mm-hmm. we do? Right. And I, for me, I think a lot of that has to do with changing our mindset from uh, thinking about what, that what we provide is, is content, right? That education is like, we are passing on this content to other people. And really in a lot of ways, what we provide is an experience, right? And it's an educational experience, not educational content. So uh, delivering things, you know, I I read a great quote a few years ago um, in uh, the magazine for NAFSA, the International Educators Magazine, and it talked about uh, loosely quoting it said, you know, we're in an age when more people are going to need more education in more formats than ever before, right? And I thought that's a brilliant way to think about it, right? We We are stuck in saying, this is how we deliver our content. We deliver it to this kind of audience in this kind of format, but people want to learn and we need to be able to meet those needs, right? Some of the best opportunities I think moving forward are going to be things like, you know, having a leadership institute that brings people from around the country or around the world to your campus to experience, um, hosting retreats, um, having symposia, like looking for other ways to bring people onto your campus to have an experience. And it's still educational in its mission, but it's not, um, you know, in that sort of typical format that we've thought about it. Our if we want to protect that core, that traditional undergraduate experience, um, we're going to have to find other ways to to pay those bills. Because again, uh-huh. I don't think that model is going to sustain itself. Uh-huh. And this is not part of our questions, but curious what your thoughts are. You know, so much, so many headlines about how we now have, you know, so many millions of people in the United States with some college, no degree. And it feels like all of the sudden the spotlight is, and and I as I'm as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, oh yes, well the next revenue stream is adult learners, right? Like we're just gonna and re-enroll all these people and get them through, and then that will be our next tuition um, resource. Um, any thoughts about? Are, are you seeing that as a place of interest with your you know other institutions that? And, and how are they going at, about that? I, I know here locally, VCU has a huge marketing push that's showing like a dad rocking a baby, reading a textbook by headlamp, right? Um, 
that you can come back and get your degree here and it's it's flexible so I think, you know, the interesting thing is that it's such a, you know, huge opportunity, right? It's a great, you know, potential market. The problem is um, we're asking those um, folks by and large to get back onto a conveyor system that they jumped off of the first time. And there was probably a reason that they jumped on it, right? So I think what um, I've seen is that institutions are interested in having those folks back but they're often not willing to change in a way that makes it a different kind of experience than the first mm-hmm. time that the person had that, right? Or they're struggling to do that. They may maybe want to, but they're kind of saying, you know, come back, but come back on our terms. And I think right. that's that's hard for a lot of adult students to do. Um, I do think that interest is out there. And I think even before that, you know, I mean, retention is such a huge opportunity for us, right? I mean, I always think what other industry can get away with only successfully serving about half of its customers, right? I mean, if you think about it, like our four-year graduation rates uh, as an as a nation are not great, um, so we are basically losing half of our customers, right, and half of our revenue stream. And so, finding ways to um, you know dig in early and you know prevent that market from coming about is also a huge opportunity. But it does take, I think, um, you know, different finding different ways to think about that because we definitely have not solved that retention um, problem. Um, I've been working lately. I just did a presentation actually um, last week at a national conference to talk about the retention issue and along with it, the the issue of melt students who, you know, they, they deposit and then at the last minute they, you know, they melt away, right. And don't enroll and really looking at how so much of that we have approached from a sense of, Oh, if we could only figure out the things that make people, you know, not retain and fix those things, then we wouldn't have problems. Right. Well, those are very individual reasons, right? There's so many reasons why a student could bump into something that's a negative and decide not to stay. But the question really is, are we giving those students a good enough reason to stay, right? In some ways, you can have 10 things that go wrong and, you know, they can be negatives. But if you have one really good reason to stay that you are committed to and that you feel like, okay, this is motivating enough to keep me in the game, even if these bad things happen, that's what we need to be providing for our students, right? Is that one good reason for them to stay and belong. And so I've talked a lot about, and we're working on on my campus, trying to make sure that, you know, every single student on campus knows somebody on campus who has their back, right? That they could go and talk to, that they could go and share life with. And then that every single student on campus has one place where they feel like they belong, some kind of club or activity or meaningful, um, you know, event in their lives. But it's really, it's not preventing the negatives, it is really investing in the positives for students that then makes them resilient enough to be able to overcome some of those negatives. So I think there's much more we can do in the retention field from the front end that might, you know, help us to make that problem smaller. Um, and then we can figure out, you know, kind of how do we go back, you know, to those students who have missed out. But but how do we provide that in a way that does not force them back into the box that we originally created for them? Right. The box that didn't work to begin with. Right. With you. I mean, if you're just offering them the same thing that you offered them before, but now we really, really want you, you know, I mean, that that's really not a compelling argument, right? Is to say, get back on and take another try at the same thing that failed the first time for you. So. Right. And I, I love the, that you're bringing in this concept of retention. There was some good news this week that persistence rates are increased. So that's, that's, I think we need to cling to all little bits of positive news we can find yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and, but looking at um, those overall pictures and I, I know institutions because I'm seeing it um, 
I think have come so far in the last 10 or 15 years at looking at that big picture of, you know, enrollment is not, it just used to be, well, we, we admit them, we have a class, yay. And, and now right. there's, you know, this, this, I think much more coordinated effort in our institutions to say, well, what does that um, enrollment look like across the time a student is here with us and how are we creating um, th these retention strategies and plans and um, curious about enrollment melt because that does not seem to be that seems to be getting worse not better yeah. Um, yeah. from from what I'm hearing and, and that's kind of a nice transition to um, the second question about you know what are what are any concerns that you're hearing from colleagues these kind of points of worry and my guess is if I'm reading my tiny crystal ball correctly, enrollment melt um, is certainly up there on the list. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's so, I think, discouraging this time of year for institutions, right? They have spent all year, probably 18 months working with, a, you know, maybe longer, working with a group mm -hmm. of students, cultivating, you know, just just trying to build those relationships and make those connections. And then, you know, students jump off the side of the ship at the last, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with, I think, uh, inst institutions are not great at making handoffs uh, between yeah. their, you know, their enrollment areas and the other areas of campus. And I think sometimes that's a shock for for students. Um, but, you know, it's funny because I really talked about in, in one of the articles I wrote for the Chronicle that it's kind of informed my thinking as I've worked through it and looked at some of the, some, you know, interesting research that really that melt we think of it as a separate thing, right? You know, retention happens over here once their students are, you know, on campus, and that's something that student development works with. And melt is something that happens to the admissions office, right? But when you look at it, students melt in the same way, right? They, if you do surveys, they melt for like ten different reasons, not one reason, right? And those ten different reasons can be varied and, and personal and mental health, and you know, worried about being away from home. So they're in the same situation where really. It's about finding a way to connect them to the institution so strongly that those small pieces, those bumps in the road don't completely bump them, you know, out of the pathway. So in a funny way, what I'm seeing is that melt is actually the first step of retention, right? You are retaining those students. It's basically like your retention starts May 1st or earlier, right? Even earlier than that. Um, and you are, you know, you're retaining those students as a first step before they get to your campus. So really those same principles of making sure that they know who to go to, they know who's invested in them, they have a meaningful reason to be at your campus and that they picked your campus over something else. Those are still drivers, right? And so, you know, at our institution, we're, you know, we're looking and trying to think about, you know, how do we build a a sort of care team for students as they're, you know, starting out, right? How do you say, congratulations, you're admitted, your transition team includes these people and you give their names and you give their pictures and right and say, these are your folks, right? They've got your back. Um, and as a different way of approaching that, I think you move away from this idea that there is a handoff and you move towards the idea that there's an integration that happens to mm -hmm. students, right? That there's a, it's more of an on-ramp that as you as you go through the process, right, as you're starting out, you know, you might be in March and 80% of the students' needs, the incoming students' needs are being met by the admissions office and 20% is being met by, you know, other areas of campus mm -hmm. like student development or business office or whatever. As you move further through and you get to June, well, that should be 50-50, right? And as you get to July and August, it should be, the admissions office should be meeting like 
20 or 30% of the students need and the rest of campus should be meeting the 70% need. And I don't think we think about it that way as institutions. We think about it as this is my office. We take it to here and then we give it to your office. But that is that is our way of experiencing it. That is not our students' way of experiencing it. I always say students don't care which office answers their questions. So it's not a, it's not a sufficient answer to say, my office doesn't do that. Let me transfer you to somebody who does, right? Okay. They don't care. They just want their question answered and they want a seamless experience. And I think that's where institutions oftentimes have, have fallen short mm-hmm. and, and we could do a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. I think about all the various students I handed off um, and did not seamlessly integrate Aaron um, and, yeah. and hand it off over over my time at admissions and what a difference that would have made had we because um, summer melt that is that is painful I mean it is um, it just feels tragic doesn't it I mean it does yeah yeah and especially if you're at an institution where it's small enough that you know those people very personally you know, yeah um, feels well any other concerns we talked about enrollment melt but other things that you're seeing colleagues talk about that. I mean, I think, you know, there are always concerns about, um, you know, the finances and how much, you know, we're able to give away in terms of scholarships and discounting. Mm -hmm. I think too, there's a lot of, you know, right now there's definitely a sense of um, bifurcation in the, you know, in the marketplace where it feels like there are some institutions that have so many applications and so much interest that they just can't, you know, they can't, beat students away right they they are you know just trying to they're they're in single digit um, acceptance rates and things like that that are just you know really insane for the student as well and then at the other side of the market you have you know institutions that are desperately looking for students just to fill their classes and that right now there doesn't feel like there's a lot in the middle um so i think that that's a, a really big challenge where you feel like the you know the the haves just keep getting more and the have nots keep getting less and I, I you know I think that's a worry for edu- higher education as an industry again right that you are you, you have lots of institutions that serve students and serve students very very well but um, they don't have big endowments they are very tuition dependent and they are very vulnerable over the next little while I think in particular and so I think there's that that's a real challenge I mean you know because theoretically if things continue in that way you could end up with many less institutions that are able to serve many less students right Mm -hmm. Um, in good ways Um, and that you know that uh, higher education could homogenize a lot and I think the the real strength of American higher education has always been it's you know it's variety and the fact that there's there's an institution for every student right um mm-hmm. that you, you can find a good match somewhere no matter who you are as a student and I think if if there continues to be that same amount of of pressure on institutions some of that variety will disappear and you will end up with with much many fewer institutions that all look similar to each other which i think would be a shame yeah that is and i'm sure you're seeing you know every week it feels like there's now i mean people have been predicting this and i do think we were able to hold on during the pandemic but there's certainly i feel like an acceleration of closing of institutions um as we uh, get towards the fall semester um and that's you know some really concerning trends that of course we're seeing. And I'm curious if you've looked at any of this, I I highlighted EAB's green light match here, but um, you know, late this spring semester, there was 
pop in the news sources about these kinds of direct and reverse admissions programs and were people seeing, you know, um, I guess first to kind of describe those for people who might not um, know about them, um, you know, the idea that you sort of through some of these systems, you sort of submit your kind of credentials, for lack of a better word, and then an institution will reach out to you and say, once we verify this, you have a spot at our school. Um, that's one, one take on these. And wondering if you're seeing or hearing any success with these, if you think these are the kinds of because as much as I feel like institutions, uh, uh, you know, are going to need to reevaluate where are their revenue sources, I also feel like there's a call, like, I don't know that our admission systems really work the way, right? Yeah. Um, especially given everything that's happened in the last, um, you know, month or so, um, as we're examining, are we doing legacy admissions? Virginia Tech is now not doing early decision. I mean, there's there's a lot of disruption, wondering yeah. if this is a new path forward or if they're going to be something I haven't even envisioned. All right. Yeah. So, Aaron, here's a crystal ball question, I guess. OK, you know, it is. This is really hard to tell. I mean, I've looked at this you know, question a little bit. Um, I, it's really going to depend on just whether or not it's the right time for this idea. Right. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, you know, the first thing I thought of, well, well, this is sort of a reincarnation of the fast app. Right. Remember when we oh. used to send send applications out to people with their names filled in and said, all you have to do is send this back to us, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it it's sort of sounds like that to me, right? Exactly. And that was something that was really hot for a little while until we realized that there was an unintended consequence, which is that the yield of those applications was terrible, right? Um, and so it sort of was, you know, a couple of years of that, and then it went away. And, oh. you know, my my first inclination is to look at this and say, that's sort of how this feels, right? That this might be something that for a couple of years, everybody's really excited about. And then it, you know, we move on to the next thing, right? Um, I think the the reason that would be different is only if, um, if the times are so different that this is an idea that really, you know, again, like you're saying, there's, there's enough upheaval in the admissions process itself that um, it makes this really a new model for admissions, right? And a new, and I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure I feel like we're there yet. I do feel uh -huh. like there is, um, you know, there's sort of renovation of the admissions process going on. There's a lot of reevaluation of things that have, you know, worked in the past, right? We're looking, people are looking at legacies, they're looking at early decision, they're looking at all these things that were tools that have been utilized in the past and updating them or passing on them. Um, and I, but I, I don't yet feel like we are in a wholesale overhaul of the enrollment process. Um, I feel like we're still tweaking, right? Um, but but not yet completely to that. And it is interesting because our, you know, our process is so opaque to um, you know, families that um it it it's really very strange, right? I mean, I think many families look at uh, admissions offices and are like, oh my goodness, they must, you know, be so selective and take, you know, so few applicants. And they don't realize that other than this really top group of institutions most institutions take most of their applicants, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we have this big process of evaluating that, you know, is not actually that rigorous on the backside, but it feels rigorous to the student on the front side, right? And so you have this dance going back and forth where it's like, you know, 
the the institution is in control and then the student is in control and then the institution is in control you know so um i think that's a really it's that's such an interesting dynamic and eventually i think that dynamic will unravel a little bit and it'll become more transparent um right. i i'm not thinking we are quite there yet um but who knows maybe in the next 5 to 7 years you know 3 to 5 years maybe you know maybe uh-huh. we could be so um, I'm, I'm not personally digging very deep into this, uh, as an option. I want to see where it goes, um, first, um, to me, it kind of, you know, we've previously had, uh, companies that do a lot of sort of matching of inquiries, right. And, and look right. for high quality inquiries. And this seems like sort of that, you know, kind of next step in that process, but, but not yet revolutionary, I wouldn't think. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I do know some of these initiatives have come out of a place of um, wanting to give students who otherwise might not, you know, be in a college track, understand that they have options, you know, access to institutions. Um, I am intrigued that EAB is kind of getting in the admissions business um, since I do has an institution that uses it, do so many other things um, data related. So I don't think it's a big surprise that they would wanna uh, shift into that that space. Um, Cause there is so much data that goes into all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, there's another trend for you, right? Which is the huge growth in um, education services, right? So, you know, I wonder how much of the education industry is is the institutions themselves. And, you know, I think the growth of the industries and the companies around higher education has just blossomed incredibly, right? So, you know, you have um, companies like EAB and other places too, that, you know, if they start in one area that they have, you know, a, a sort of a deep well in, and they quickly sort of broaden to try to capture, you know, larger and larger pieces of the higher ed market. And there are multiple vendors out there that are kind of doing that. And I've seen, I think we've seen this, growth into, you know, a few kind of mega companies that, um, you know, are, are trying to serve institutions all across the board. Um, but I think it's also been amazing for me to see how many, you know, higher ed professionals have moved in that direction, right? They have sort of switched sides of the desk. Well, not even right. the desk, right? They've switched sides of the industry and they've moved on into um, into working on the for-profit side of higher ed. I think that's been a, a big trend over the last Mm-hmm. 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to come back to that. So, okay. um, so next question, creative responses that you're seeing um, institutions um, employing or deploying uh, regarding enrollment strategies. And, and you know, I'm, I, I always enjoy your writing. And in May, you had a piece in the Chronicle about kind of this new effort at your institution to sort of combine admissions and marketing efforts, which in my mean makes, well, yeah, light bulb, right? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Rather than you're, you know, as we all, so many of us have probably done getting the cue, right? With marketing and, and hope that your video gets produced in the time that you need it and bless all those, those folks hard. So. I, I think, I mean, I do think that makes sense, right? I mean, typically as enrollment, you are likely the largest client of your marketing mm-hmm. office, right? And certainly in terms of the revenue potential that you have, you you may also be the most important client, right? Between At least between you and the advancement office, you pretty much have 
most of the revenue tied tied up in those um, those areas and your ability to influence students, influ influence the perception of the university and its positioning. So I think I think it makes a lot of sense to, to integrate those offices. And we've been really you know trying to work to do that. Um, it's it's really hard to move forward in great ways without that. If you're not in a unified voice, if your you know, offices are competing with each other for resources. So um, I, I do think that's that is one strategy is to really, you know, focus your your efforts in that way. Um, we've seen, you know, again, certainly institutions looking to tap into different markets, um, whether that's a graduate market, whether those are international markets, um, you know, different, uh, you know, different ways to look for um, revenue opportunities. Um, but and I do think we've seen institutions um, really try to do better at their core business, right? Um, this is not, I guess, specifically to enrollment, but um, one of the things that um, I've been working on some projects with with um, some institutions is a, a look at the way that their business services work and their accounts payable oh. areas, right? And what, what I've found is that like when we've worked in our areas, if you can empower your accounts payable kinds of folks and your financial aid office, Typically, they can review all the processes and policies and things that they have and find that many of them do not work to the institution's advantage, right? That they are, they're duplicating efforts, they are not using funds as efficiently as possible. Um, there are policies that just don't make sense. Um, we've I've seen this a lot, you know, both, you know, both here and other institutions where um, some of the easiest revenue to make back is the revenue that you're spending badly, right? Mm. Where, you, where you just, you're, you know, you're letting money leak out of the bottom of the institution. And okay. I think for years that was okay because you had the revenue coming in. So it wasn't a big deal if you were a little sloppy on the backside. And now I think institutions are saying, wow, Okay, we don't have that luxury anymore, so we need to, you know, we need to do that. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's more on the revenue side, I guess. But um, you know, on the enrollment side, I do see some creativity happening. I see new, you know, methods of outreaching. I see institutions doing a better job of partnering in their home communities. Um, you know, I see them trying to uh, utilize their alumni or different influencer groups in different ways. Um, so I, I do see some of those kinds of techniques that are that are at the tactical level, right? Not mostly not strategic, but but using tactics to kind of help uh, increase the way you do that. And a lot of it has to do with really telling your story in a compelling way um, mm -hmm. to people and then having other people who can also help you to tell that story. Mm -hmm. Which really ties to those marketing efforts, right? I mean, I think- Absolutely. You know, I, I, I certainly don't have any marketing background like that is- you know, not a, a skill set I would possess coming into an admissions office, but having being able to connect with those folks on our institutions who really can help you tell that story in that compelling way makes an enormous difference. Curious about changes if you're seeing, um, you know, it used to be that I remember we would get names right from College Board and then send out, there was always what would be this year's admissions flyer and who got the big catalog and all, all the all the postcards and all those fun things um, and, and what would be sort of this year's take on that. Um, are you seeing any changes with how we're how we're sending out marketing content or is pushing students yeah. to interact? 
I think, uh, you know, I think we're at a really interesting sort of pivot point on that one, right? So we still do a lot of those traditional things. Those are still the baseline of what we do, you know, buy some search names, you know, uh, reach out to them via email, reach out to them via print pieces. But we know that those are, um, you know, they feel like blunt instruments sometimes, right? They feel like they're not very um, exact. And I think, What's shifted that a little bit, of course, is all, all the digital marketing, right, that that goes yeah. on in the way that we work with students, you know, in a digital space um, and try to target who they are. I think many institutions have, um, you know, engaged more in ways of uh, sort of pre-qualifying those students and trying to select the names that, uh, you know, make more sense uh, from a historical data standpoint um, to try to get, you know, best names and then figure out how to reach out to them based on that. Um I think that that's been hard too, because of course we had the sort of two COVID cycles. And so our historical data isn't as good. And I think our students actually, you know, have changed over that time period and um, respond differently. And we're still sort of catching up to the way that like, okay, is this, you know, is this search model really explaining the behavior of my students? Right. Because, because you're limited by your history. And if your history is is not consistent, um, you know, that kind of throws a wrench into all your, all of your modeling. But um, I do see, you know, some innovation happening um, there, um, not wild innovation yet. I still think we, you know, you know, email is still a main tool, search name purchases are still a baseline. I think everybody would love to find a new way to do that. Um, but um, nobody's, I think, really, you know, found that sort of secret sauce to make that happen. I think we we thought for a while that maybe that was going to happen by those sort of, um, you know, self-designated names, those great platforms that students could go and, you know, sign up for and, you know, tell us that they were interested and then those leads would be so much more qualified. And, and those, I think, have a place and they help, but I don't think they were the revolutionary, um, you know, change agent that many people thought they were going to be. Very interesting. Wait. Intriguing to see if there's new. Are are you finding students coming back to campus for, you know, COVID and we did everything online and now do you feel like students are like, no, I really want to be physically back on, on your institutional campus or um, I think, you know, that's a really interesting sort of mixed question. We definitely have seen some trends there. Um, we've seen some trends about, you know, I think there's a slice of students that um, just have not come back to that idea, right? They 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 want the flexibility. They're, you know, looking for that. They're fine doing that. One of the really interesting um, uh, data points I saw the other day was that, you know, for many students, like your highest concentration of online students are actually tend to be local. Uh, which I found is really interesting, right? Like you're normally going to think, oh, those students, you know, we're going to get online students because right. we're too far away from them. And so they're going to, but it's actually like your students are, local students are choosing that as like, okay, this is the easiest option for me, right? And right. so it's strange. It's not the students that you would think of. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think we're seeing some other trends of those students who do come back to campus. They seem, you know, excited to be on campus and be able to participate, but um, they don't come to events the way they used to, right? Mm -hmm. we, I think, you know, we've really seen struggles of trying to get students out of their room and, you know, mm -hmm. into activities in the way that they used to and leadership and that kind of thing. I think they, you know, they just sort of got accustomed to being more alone. Um, right. 
which is a difficult trend and I think probably contributes to the, you know, massive rise in um, sort of mental health concerns and, and issues that are, I think, on many institutions' minds right now. Absolutely. Well, a nice way to transition to our last question, if you could gaze into the ball for us, the crystal ball for the coming year, any predictions? I mean, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, you you bring up some really key themes, right? massive concern mental health continues to be the top concern I think for college presidents across the United States you know we've talked about the need to re-examine our 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 funding our revenue streams um, and institutions I'm going to be excited to read you're going to write something about that I feel it (laughs) uh, bubbling up so but any other other crystal ball moments that you have for us I think um I think if I'm, you know, looking ahead and saying, you know, what's going to happen here, I think there's going to be pressure on certain areas of institutions to kind of rethink their role. I see areas like um, some of the areas of student development, career services, outcomes, those kinds of pieces that um, increasingly feel like they are using older models that has not kept up with the student, uh, the needs of students, whether that's mental health or uh, very, you know, uh, clear ROI measures or those kinds of things. I think I think those areas are going to be under increasing pressure to uh, update and upgrade and those kinds of things. Um, I think you're going to see institutions. We've been in a wave of just create more programs and they'll come. Um, and I, I I think that's going to really start to cool down and fizzle as we see that you know I don't think that was really the silver bullet that institutions you know, hoped it was going to be. So I think they're going to have to go back to the drawing board a little bit on that. I think you're going to see this progression of institutions, you know, continuing to invest at the graduate level and trying to figure out what they could look like with, with uh, new populations. Um, I think, you know, I think we're going to be in the news a lot again for the next year. I think you are going to see additional school closings. I think there are going to be articles about, um, you know, again, as uh, accreditors go around and do their um, their work that, um, you know, more institutions mm-hmm. than they expected are in poor financial health. Um, so I think you're going to continue to see those issues. Um, it'll be really interesting to see if we if we start to see some acknowledgement in the marketplace. You know, a lot of the stories that we are seeing have been things like uh you know, diversity in admissions or legacy in admissions and those kind of things, which again are issues that really mostly impact a, a very high level group of institutions. And mm-hmm. much of the rest of the marketplace is minimally impacted in that. And I wonder if there at some point will be this recognition that there is more division within that, that there are, you know, again, sort of a more bifurcated market. Um, and what, what what do we do about that? Right. So, um, We'll, we'll see. We'll see if that comes or not. But um, I think the hard thing is that the, you know, media in general loves the stories of those higher edgy, like those really highest institutions, right? They all want to know what the Ivies are doing and they follow that even if it, and then they, and then often that information is extrapolated out to people that it doesn't apply to. And so I don't know if that's going to be something that w- will possibly change in order to get a more accurate picture. That'd be really intriguing, you know, as I, um, I know you've got at least one college aged student. Two uh, actually, yeah. I got two in college right now. Yeah. I'm living Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. You are very much living it. And we're about to embark on this um, crazy ride uh, with our high school junior. So it's really gearing up at our house. And I, I think uh, as a, 
as a parent and as a higher ed professional, I'm just struck by the fact that that you know we live in this yo-yo, the stress of oh, fifty-one thousand applications at the University of Virginia, right? And then down the street, the University of Mary Washington, which is a wonderful institution, is like, please come to school here, right? Um, and and we see this across the United States in our community colleges, many of them really struggling with enrollment numbers. And and as you have so eloquently said, both on this podcast and before, there is a place for every student. And and yeah. yet I see people making themselves crazy in a process that does not need to be the crazy process that it is. Yeah, and, I, and I think that's absolutely true. There is a really um, strange sort of, um, I don't know if it's an elite sentiment or something or or a fear of missing out that is in the marketplace when it comes yes. to, to college education, right? That, you know, you and I know that a student could go, you know, a great student could go to a seemingly average type of institution and could be treated like an absolute star there and could get every possible opportunity and network and, you know, go on to a great outcome and probably, you know, be really satisfied with their experience. And yet that student will often not consider that institution just because, you know, it's not ranked well, or it's not competitive enough. It's not, you know, it, I want, I worry what my friends will think or what my friend's parents will think. Right. And um, that, that really is a shame, I think, in a lot of ways, because, you know, again, we are good at working with everybody. And it's, it, you know, I, I use this really terrible analogy, but I, I say it's, you know, it's sort of like dating, right? And like, why would you want to, you know, it, do you really want to go to the prom with, you know, maybe the prettiest person in school if they if they don't like you at all, right? If they don't care if you're there, right? If they pay no attention to you while you're there, right? Is that really what you want? Or would you rather go with somebody that you're going to have a really great time with and make wonderful memories, right? Okay. It, it's a strange thing, but you, you want to choose, and I think you want to choose an institution that has the same level of interest in you as you have in the institution, right. then it's a great match. And then you're going to get like the best sort of, you know, they're going to invest in you in ways that are, are going to pay off. Um, but, but a lot of students just don't see it that way. They want to go where they are most likely to be rejected. You know, it's, it's, yeah. It's it's a, it's an odd dynamic, but it's something that is right. You know, certainly right now is part of our culture. Right. Um, yeah. That's a good point. That fear of missing out, I think, is a an excellent way to to kind of tag that um, in, in our very crazy world of college admissions. Well, yeah. Aaron, thank you so much. We have gone over just a few minutes. I appreciate your time today and you gazing into that crystal ball and. Um, hope we can revisit this conversation in a year from now and see what what predictions what came happened. true. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we all need to strap in because it's going to be a ride. So um, yeah. I'm sending you. I know. I know the admission cycle is, of course, already in full swing at your institution. So sending you good thoughts as you bring in this class. I know it's all exciting to get them get them in their spaces, see their faces, and then take one quick breath and move on to. Uh, the next one so absolutely wish you all the best thank you so much it's been a pleasure well thank you thank you thank you everybody for joining us today for um, our friday five live Um, melissa's popped up our survey please do fill that out because it helps make sure that we're providing you content that you're finding um, helpful or topics that you're curious about we will continue our admissions discussion on august the 31st Um, so feel free come back and 
and have more chat with us about what you're seeing um, as we kick off the fall semester. And in September in our Friday Five Live, we're gonna be diving into student parents and how we can support um, college students who are um, also parenting um, children. So that'll be a, a really interesting conversation, I feel like. So thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. Hope there's time for rest and renewal. And Aaron, thank you again so much for your time. It's such a gift to us. My pleasure. Thanks, Meg. Thank you. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.